on this episode of the Made to Thrive show. Uh, including the development of a concept called orthomolecular medicine, which was um, this concept of individualizing medicine around a unique uh, personality, a metabolic personality a person has. And, and that fit right for me into my kind of uh, sweet spot of interest, uh, trying to define individual characteristics of, uh, of why some people got sick and others didn't. Hello Thrive Nation. Ever wondered who founded and pioneered functional medicine? Well, he's our guest on the show today and his name is Dr. Jeffrey Bland. He has been an internationally recognized leader in the nutritional medicine field for over 35 years. And he's known as the father of functional medicine for his ability to synthesize complex scientific concepts in a manner that is both personable and accessible. Dr. Bart books on nutritional medicine for healthcare professionals and six books for the general public. Join us as we explore the power of functional medicine, what it is and how to deliver healthcare versus disease care, how Dr. Bland got momentum against a very westernized medical model, group practice to reduce healthcare costs and the role of health coaches in the future medical model, mitochondropathy and the interrelated relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, desert storm and multiple chemical sensitivity. The tools of GI restoration, metabolic detoxification and immunorejuvenation. The oral microbiome, periodontitis and hidden infections simmering in your mouth. Please head over to madetothrive.co.za for more wisdom and to take accountability of your health. We have an incredible free ebook and you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter. Send us your feedback, rate, review on Apple and download and share on Spotify. And always remember, delight in your purpose and be surrounded. Hello Thrive Nation. Today I've got Dr. Jeffrey Bland the father of functional medicine. He's lectured to over 250,000 medical professionals in over 50 countries. And I've got a personal transformation story because of his incredible calling that he's just uh, followed and been committed to over so many years, I think over 35 years. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jeffrey Bland. Well, I can't tell you how much it's a pleasure to be with you, Steve. Thank you. Well, I want to tell you my story briefly because I think it's a good intro for our listeners and our viewers on, on YouTube is that I studied uh, in my other life Chinese medicine or Oriental medicine, became a doctor of Chinese medicine in 2007. And the greatest paradigm that I learned was to treat the root of disease and not to treat symptoms, uh, but to look deeper and to dive deeper into the reasons why people were suffering with the signs and symptoms. And this was so important for my journey with regards to my wife after a long, arduous journey of infertility and the number of vitro fertilizations and hormonal treatments. She started to have some, have some significant emotional signs and symptoms. And I was just grateful that I went to an endocrinologist, one of my colleagues who treated her really well with functional medicine and didn't throw too many pharmaceutical drugs at her initially. And it's been a journey where I can celebrate two beautiful children. She's not on any Western medicine. Uh, really miracles over time because 
of a paradigm of uh, going deeper, looking at the root of disease. And so I want to thank you personally because many of the people that I've followed for many years since 2001 when I started my training, like Dr. Mark Hyman and yourself, uh, doctors like Dr. Pearl Matter as well, have really dived very deep into functional medicine. And it is a different way of treating. I think it is still in its infancy here in South Africa. I think it's, been, it's going to be growing and, and, and more as the internet and as knowledge becomes freely available. So I do want to thank you because I've got too many stories of my own patients in my other life to share with you. But you've been so integral in being committed to your purpose. So I do want to thank you for that. And uh, well, I, I'm, I'm very touched. And what a, there's no uh, more rewarding story than a story of where people have overcome longstanding kind of chronic uh, problems and can break through to be the full opportunity of, of health that they really deserve. And to, to have a family come from this is like the greatest reward of all. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That's really exciting. Pleasure. I do want to hear your backstory over 35 years in nutritional medicine, 120 peer-reviewed articles, five books at least that I know of, uh, just so uh, committed to breaking this Western medical model paradigm that is really excellent at treating emergency medicine and, and issues, but not really good at treating chronic disease. And you had, a, I think, an intractable curiosity, uh, intellectual curiosity to keep on synthesizing things over time. So tell us the details and go deep into those details because I think they're important. Yeah, thank you. I, I think I'll just pick up the story uh, at the point in my life where I, I really had uh, kind of a professional and personal epiphany. Um, you know, this would have been about uh, at age of 35 to 40 for me. I was a professor at the time. I was very fortunate. Uh, I was had become a tenured professor very at a very young age uh, in, in chemistry and environmental science at the university in the state of Seattle in Washington. Um, and the, the epiphany for me was that I was asked if I would be interested in taking a sabbatical uh, leave to work with Dr. Linus Pauling at um, his Institute of Science and Medicine in, in California at Stanford University. And um, Dr. Pauling uh, was and still is the only person to have won two independent Nobel Prizes in two fields. One is in chemistry and the other. And he and his wife, Eva Helen, uh, are just uh, remarkable people, leaders in, in so many different ways. And, I'd had the fortune of taking chemistry from him at a much earlier age in my career or my development and had been following his work as, as did hundreds of thousands of other scientists and people. And uh, as a consequence of the way things evolved, uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in, in leading a research lab at his, uh, his, at his facility in, in California. So I, um, I took a sabbatical for a couple of years with my young family. We moved down to California. This was 1981. And uh, it was transformation, not only for science, uh, but for just the, the vision of uh, what he said was his ambition, he and his wife's ambition in life was to find ways to reduce human suffering. And, you know, he did it through his lens and his tools uh, and that of his wife, which were through 
the science of, of chemistry, but it led into all sorts of other things. Uh, obviously, winning the Nobel Prize uh, in peace was a consequence of his wife's advocacy that uh, he be more involved in at, uh, trying to get cessation of atmospheric testings of nuclear weapons. And so he uh, went with uh, Albert Schweitzer and Albert Einstein. The three of them combined together their energies and they mobilized 60,000 globally renowned scientists to um, petition the UN uh, to ultimately get this, what I think was a, a fantastically uh, significant step forward for all of humankind to prohibit atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons, which was part of a, a larger advocacy really to try to get rid of nuclear weapons altogether. They were not successful in doing that, but at least they've made some steps to recognize the, um, the terror of, of arms that are of nuclear origin and, and uh, reduce, reduce the atmospheric uh, background radiation by stopping cessation, uh, cessating uh, testing. So uh, that led him, that advocacy, into all sorts of issues with the, with the United States government, uh, because this occurred in our history in the United States of uh, what was called McCarthyism, a period where people were very worried about communism, and it was thought, well, you know, he, maybe he was a communist sympathizer. He lost his, his, uh, his visa. He couldn't actually travel to get a second Nobel Prize in, in, uh, Switzerland, in Sweden because he had been um, restricted in travel. Uh, and it, it didn't deter either he or his wife. They continued just to move forward. And from that then did all sorts of things, uh, including the development of a concept called orthomolecular medicine, which was um, this concept of individualizing medicine around a unique uh, personality, a metabolic personality a person has. And, and that fit right for me into my kind of uh, sweet spot of interest, uh, trying to define individual characteristics of uh, of why some people got sick and others didn't. And so that those two years I spent in sabbatical there were, were, were very significant in terms of my kind of developing my own model of where I wanted to take my life from that point on at age 40 on. And so I came home from that sabbatical back to my professorship and I made the decision I would give up my tenure faculty position and the security I had, uh, my research monies and all that stuff. and college education to be paid for for my kids. And uh, I, I just made the decision that I was going to do something different, which was to form a company to teach doctors how to do preventive medicine in their practice. That was my full business plan. I mean, I had, uh, when I think back, it's kind of a craziness to think that I had a mortgage, I had uh, children, I had a family, I had responsibilities, I had moved my parents up, and my dad had taken early retirement. And suddenly, I'm here I am, I'm telling people that I'm going to do something I'm not really trained to do at all, and that is to go out and become an advocate to um, teach docs how to do nutritional medicine and do prevention. Um, well, it turned out that, you know, retrospect, uh, was it was the best decision I ever made. It wasn't to say that it was a, not a smooth road. There were rocky uh, components along the road, but, but ultimately that uh, became really the guiding principle for me, uh, really from what I learned from the Paulings. And over, over time then, that was um, 83, when I made that decision to give up my faculty uh, position. Uh, by 90, seven years later, uh, we had grown up a pretty uh, substantial little company that was doing education for doctors and producing various educational materials and courses. Uh, I, uh, you know, 
maybe you need to form an organization that would bring uh, health practitioners of all types and, and disciplines together because you've been traveling around the world by this time. You've got all these friends that you have very high regard for that you think are thought leaders. Maybe we should bring them all together. And uh, so we had a meeting in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, actually it was in Victoria on Vancouver Island, uh, in which we invited about 50 uh, individuals that we had known that we were from different disciplines that we thought would be really interesting thought leaders to come together and and ask the question, what would an ideal healthcare system look like? If you took away reimbursement, you took away licensure, you just talked about the concept of delivering the best quality care, what would it look like? And uh, from that then emerged over the course of actually meeting um, for two years, for three days and two years, um, we, uh, the second year, uh, I had this kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, this dream that what we should call this was functional medicine. <clears throat> because I, I made a joke with myself. I said, so if you ask people in, in any medical group or any health group, no matter what their discipline was, what their background was, would all those that want to practice dysfunctional medicine please stand up? I recognize that probably no one would say that. So then I said, well, that must mean everyone wants to do functional medicine. So maybe we should call it functional medicine because it's a double entendre. It's not only functional as it relates to practice, but it also deals with the function of the individual versus the disease. And then it, it causes us to have to move upstream asking where does that problem with their function come from? So we, in 1990, we, uh, we then moved forward to start the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is I think officially ground, formed in, uh, in 1991. And I'm, I'm so uh, really amazed now when I look back to, to that little um, modest beginning because now there are more than 200,000 practitioners that have gone through the Certified Institute for Functional Medicine courses. We've got textbook, we've got uh, accreditation uh, from the American College of uh, Continuing Medical Education for Category 1 accreditation. And it has become a movement. It's become an ecosystem unto itself, uh, way beyond probably what I ever would have dreamed could have happened. And I think it did so because of people like you, people who caught the uh, concept that seemed to fit into uh, these belief systems as to how to create a more effective way of delivering health care to individuals, not just disease care, but health care. And, and it then became kind of a, a revolution of individuals, all self-recruiting and, and, and affiliating with this movement. And um, in fact, it, it, to me, it, it's um, when I look back at the history of this whole now 30 plus years, uh, it's interesting because I made a decision that I didn't want this institution, nor did my wife, to become called the Jeff and Susan Bland Institute. We wanted it to be seen as something that was owned by the individual practitioners in, in the field at large. So we actually left the board of directors of the Institute for Functional Medicine. We completely distanced ourselves so that it could actually be seen as an independent organization. And so for about five or six years, we had no a formal relationship with IFM at all. We've now gone back onto the board after that period of time and I'm, I'm enjoying it. But what happened over those years is it grew up to have its own identity, to have its own imprimatur and uh, capture still the flavor of what we were trying to do, but, but to distance itself from the limitation of being called, well, that's the Jeff Bland thing. And, and, and I think it gave it, it put oxygen in the room and it allowed it to grow up. And so that's become a really uh, important part of, of my um, still active in engagement. 
And then we made a decision uh, in 2013 that there was a there was a part of what IFM could not actually do very well because of its accreditation. Uh, when you have this ACCM accreditation, it puts certain uh, kind of blind, not blinders, and constraints on what you can teach because it has to be uh, considered usual and customary and standards of practice. And and to do that, it kind of prevents you from doing some of the cutting edge stuff you might want to do to keep refreshing your ideas. So I decided we needed to have a second organization that wasn't going to be constrained by um, uh, accreditation for continuing medical education. It would just be open to ideas. So that became the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute that we, uh, we formed in 2013, which is not uh, going after uh, uh, postgraduate accreditation. It's just going after trying to bring the best of ideas together from different uh, investigators, clinicians. And now over the last, um, now seven going on eight years, that's really grown up to have its own identity. And, and it's, uh, it's been able to then spawn and uh, I think stimulate growth in other organizations, including IFM, that have been able to take some of these ideas that come out of PLMI and incorporate them in, in their institutions. So that's been kind of the, the, long, the long description of how I got to, to uh, 2020 with, uh, with, with my activities. Great. Well, I salute you because it's an incredible journey, incredible calling. I'm sure there must have been highs and lows and a, a lot of resistance along the way. But uh, you've got a huge movement. And uh, as I've said before, very grateful. Many of my patients over the last 20 years of practice are, are truly grateful uh, because it can be so simple but so profound in its effectiveness. And, and that's the beauty of functional medicine. But just for the viewers and, and the listeners, how would you summarize as the father of functional medicine? How would you summarize functional medicine? What is functional medicine? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think you actually did a very good job already of answering that question, but I'll just, I'll just reiterate what you've already said. Um, functional medicine really is asking not what you have, but how you got there. Uh, it's really asking the upstream effects that give the downstream set of symptoms that that person has that leads them to see their practitioner. And as you already indicated, this concept was not just uh, born out of the idea of those individuals back in 1990. This, this has a historical tradition going back thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine, in Ayurvedic medicine, and in traditional healing uh, systems. This has been a concept, this, this root cause concept has it wasn't invented by us at all. What we did, however, I think our contribution to it is to westernize it in terms of bringing science of Western science into these um, traditional modes of healing. So we started to ask, <clears throat> what do we know about the nature of uh, changes that occur at the cellular and subcellular level that ultimately give rise to these upstream effects that then downstream produce these diseases? So we we started to, I think, harmonize Western kind of, um, uh, I guess you'd call it reductionistic thinking with, with other traditions of healing that were more experiential and, and, and observational in nature to, to try to provide a mechanistic understanding. And I think we were able to, um, at least to some degree, accomplish that goal. And I, I'm always reminded when I, when I think back on this of a really remarkable moment in my um, life in which I was invited to lecture uh, at Beijing University Medical Center and Medical School, which was arguably the top medical center in, in China at the time. And we, we had an audience actually with the chief of medicine there of the whole very huge uh, medical center, who really was the top doctor in China. And uh, 
he uh, would, if, if we had a diplomat from the United States and China and they had to have medical service, they would be seen by, by him and his colleagues. So this was, was really a very um, remarkable opportunity to kind of speak to the top of the Chinese medical hierarchy. And so I lectured, uh, I, I'm laughing when I think about it, I lectured on functional medicine for three hours. Obviously it was translated. My Mandarin is not capable of doing this. And I, I had a very good translator, a woman who was really very good in getting my ideas across. She even, when I said jokes, they even laughed in the jokes when she translated them. So she was pretty good. And um, so after the lecture was over and I had the whole senior staff of the, of the medical school there, plus the senior administrator, and um, after it was over, then we had a celebratory gift giving uh, experience where I gave the administrator a gift for the opportunity to be there and gave a little speech to him, which was translated and he graciously accepted my gift. Then he gave me a gift back and then he gave a little speech back to me. Well, it turned out that that speech, it was, it was very humorous, went on and on and on. He was speaking in, in, in Mandarin I didn't really understand. He was going very quickly and he was, it was not just like uh, a minute. It was several minutes of maybe like five or more minutes. And I was just sitting there thinking, I wonder what he's saying. And, and my translator was trying to, to keep up, right? And then finally he turned to me and I said, so what did he say? And he said, well, he basically said, you're the first American that he's ever heard that seems to understand Chinese medicine. <laughs> so, so that was a really, um, a little did I know that that's what I was actually doing. But I think that showed that we were harmonizing these yeah. concepts together. Yeah, it's fantastic it's because Chinese medicine has a saying, same disease, different pattern, and different disease, same pattern. And so, you know, you can treat someone with headaches and possibly endometriosis by, you know, treating their homocysteine levels. Uh, know, yeah, sorry, I think the, the, the bandwidth was bad, but it's, it's so fascinating because, uh, can you hear me, Dr. Bland? Yes, I can. Okay. Yeah. Is that in Chinese medicine, there's a saying, same disease, different pattern, and different pattern, same disease. And so we always get taught that someone could come in with headaches or some or endometriosis and you could just rectify their homocysteine levels or their iron levels and uh, you can treat multiple sort of conditions by treating the root with different sort of symptoms that improve so yes it's, exactly. it's, you know, it's a fascinating process but tell me uh, with your few colleagues how you got momentum against this very difficult western medical model that is so and in south africa it's very conservative here how did you get momentum where it can be sort of freely accepted functional medicine? Well, uh, first of all, I, I probably, to be fully honest, would say I'm not, I'm not sure it is all freely accepted. I think we're still uh, in a, I'm going to use an optimistic uh, positive term, we're still in an educational opportunity for bringing more and more people into understanding what this model is all about and, and being less antagonistic uh, as it relates to people's pushback against something that sounds different. But I do believe we've, um, we've moved the ball forward quite uh, well over the last, particularly the last 10 years. The first, uh, the first 20 years were, um, as you said earlier, were fraught with a lot of uh, pushback and a lot of uh, criticism and, and people didn't understand. And I recognize that we were speaking with some different language and different uh, strategic thinking. Um, but now the last 10 years, <clears throat> I think we started to 
<clears throat> penetrate this, this kind of shell of uh, exclusion. And the reason for that, uh, I, I think, comes from many different um, intersections. Um, first of all, the development of the concept of systems biology as a basic science has just dramatically um, grown over the last 10 years. And that's to our benefit, because now we have all sorts of top-rated scientists and articles in top-rated journals that we can cite saying, see, I told you so, kind of. Uh, secondly, uh, we have somewhat democratized uh, healthcare information with the internet now, whereas before a certain group of people could really control information and, and you had to come on bended knees to them to get answers. Now we have the internet, which makes uh, things much more readily available. And it puts into the bright light all sorts of other ideas that previously might have been sequestered or pushed away. And so I think that that, um, that kind of democratization of, of information has really helped functional medicine as well. Third, uh, were some of the kind of individuals itself uh, affiliated with the functional medicine movement early on, and you mentioned one of them, uh, I would consider him one of my uh, in understudies who I have extraordinary um, respect for, and that's Dr. Mark, Mark Hyman. Uh, Mark is just a brilliant clinician, brilliant communicator, tremendous writer, uh, just, a, uh, just a really great, great person. And um, Mark, because of his clinical acumen and because of his communication skills and his visibility and also his, uh, his warrior-like attitude to uh, basically not be put off um, and be a good communicator of his ideas, he was able then to convince the uh, CEO of the arguably the largest uh, medical uh, system in the United States, the Cleveland Clinic system, to be so interested in functional medicine that eventually he asked Mark if he'd be interested in setting up a clinic, uh, a functional medicine center in the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of pushback by the docs. You can imagine there are 15,000 doctors in the Cleveland Clinic uh, main campus in Cleveland, Ohio. And there was a lot of pushback by some of those doctors saying, what are you doing and inviting this weird thing over to have a, uh, to a facility here in our, our Golden Temple? <laughs> and uh, because uh, Toby Cosgrove, the CEO, was a um, very committed guy and also he was a tremendous leader and he had great respect, uh, he just said, no, we're going to do this. Uh, you know, we need to see what medicine is all about in the future. We're going to do this. And that clinic then, uh, once it was formed in the Cleveland Clinic, and initially it was a fairly small amount of space, square feet out of the full clinic, but it became out for like a year and a half with appointments. It was the most wow. busy clinic in all of uh, the, the array of Cleveland Clinic um, options. And uh, so they said, um, well, gee whiz, it looks like uh, you've got a you've got a going concern here. I mean, it really looks like it's working. So then they allowed the uh, space to be expanded in a new building, in the new neurology building. And they then moved their space out to 30,000 square feet and now expanded the number of doctors over the last few years and then did research, which was published. And ironically, one of the uh, studies that was published in the JAMA, General American Medical Association, that compared the outcome of patients that were seen in, this, in the uh, functional medicine center to patients in the Cleveland Clinic that were seen in a family practice, a usual and customary center with similar kinds of array of chronic symptoms, uh, it was found that those that were treated in the, uh, the traditional clinic, the family medicine center, did have positive outcome, but those with similar situations in the functional medicine clinic 
actually get better at a statistically significant level using the uh, so-called um, patient reported uh, outcome survey analysis. So <clears throat> what that did is really kind of bolster the support for functional medicine at an institutional level. It was pretty hard to, uh, to refute stuff that's going on in the visibility of Cleveland Clinic and then to refute the article that was published in JAMA as being artifactual or, or, or not, not having value. So I think all of those things have now paved the way for increased uh, interest and adoption. And now that we have COVID-19 um, uh, disease, now individuals are saying with practices moving virtual and all sorts of things happening with chronic illness that are post-COVID uh, syndrome related, that the functional medicine model may have a better opportunity for managing those complex situations than with a traditional treat the symptom medication approach. So now we're seeing really great uh, growth in the functional medicine model and practitioners that are providing it through this unfortunate circumstance it's, that we're all dealing with with COVID-19. Well, that's great to hear, not that it came from C19, but because functional medicine, I believe, is the way forward to really, it's the science of health, to optimize your mind, body, and soul, to look at people holistically, to treat all facets of their human being, and not only the physical, because the physical and emotional uh, and the mental all work together. So I'm glad to hear that it's been thrust even further forward. Uh, the next question I have is I had James Maskell on the Made to Thrive show. We wrote the Community Cure. I found that uh, absolutely fascinating. And even Dr. Mark Hyman said the greatest force to bring about change is community. And one of the things against functional medicine that I get to hear well, that comes against me is that it's very expensive. You know, the consultations one-on-one -on -one are expensive. The supplementation and the journey initially often is quite costly. But James seems with group visits to have possibly the way forward to treat many patients with one practitioner. What are your views on that? And, and what's going to be happening in the future with functional medicine? Boy, I think, uh, thank you for bringing it up. I think that's right on point. And I have such high regard for James uh, Maskell. I think he's done such a fantastic job of, of communicating these principles down at a level that people can really understand and be the innovator uh, around this concept of a group practice. Um, and in fact, let me just tell your, your viewers that um, James and I did a whole podcast series together uh, and they can find our podcast on uh, bigboldhealth.com, bigboldhealth.com health.com. It's the James Maskell, Jeff Bland pod ser podcast series in which we talk about this very concept and we interview a variety of uh, women and men that are leaders in the field around this construct of a of group practice. Um, and when I say group practice, I really mean uh, group meetings. And <clears throat> this is a really powerful concept that uh, we have found psychologically um, there were, initially people were saying, well, no, people don't want to disclose their health problems. So they don't want to work in groups. They want to work individually. But often um, <clears throat> what we assume uh, is the case when we actually test it is not, a, not the case. And when you start really looking at the community that's developed around a specific uh, condition, it, it could be um, menopausal symptoms, it could be chronic fatigue, it could be metabolic syndrome, it could be I mean, any, uh, uh, autoimmune disease, that people when they get together with common conditions <clears throat> actually reinforce one another and they form as strengthens and reinforces their advocacy and their commitment to adhere and comply 
with what they know is best for them. And so it's quite the opposite that they're worried about sharing their personal health problems. It actually increases through the community of account contact with a facilitated discussion with a practitioner. And that makes this much more cost effective as well, because now the practitioner's time can be divided out over a number of individuals that are paying less per time than they would individually. And it makes this both uh, economically accessible as well as increases, I think, the stickiness and the uh, uh, the value proposition to the patient themselves. So I, I think what James Maskell has done is, is brilliant. Great. Uh, tell me your view on a health coach or a health advocate, because there are very few of them in South Africa. And if there are a few, there's not a sort of standardized you know, curriculum that they go through. Not that I think there should always necessarily be only one curriculum, but uh, I think a health coach will fill a gap to journey along with patients, to journey along with uh, a group of patients and a group visit or group practice sort of system and protocol. Where does the health coach lie in the future? Yes, I, I think that's another very important component of this, this new system that we're talking about. How do you implement these functional medicine concepts in a delivery form that's cost effective, time effective, and leads to good positive outcome. And I think the health coach, um, functional medicine trained health coach, which uh, you probably know that Dr. Sandy Scheinbaum uh, started the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy a number of years ago. And now they're literally in the United States, uh, I don't not know the exact number, but I would uh, expect uh, more than a thousand individuals that are engaged with the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy become uh, graduates of their program, which is really functional medicine light. It's, it's functional medicine from a coaching perspective. And a lot of the physicians now that have found uh, that the coaches are coming out of this academy can work in collaboration with them have really seen the advantage of having health coaches that are really where the tire meets the road. They're the interface between the patient and the practitioner to really make a lot of these things real, to be there to mm. help that patient really go through the process. So I think that this is another component of this new model that is really valuable. And the other thing I, lo I love about it, it's bringing so many new, fresh, energetic individuals into our healthcare um, facilities and healthcare system that really have tremendous skills in people management. They, 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 they probably are not uh, ever wanting to be a doctor but they, they have great advocacy for helping people on their journey to health. And so it's the perfect way to use those talents and skills uh, into a system that needs a lot more um, active participation with individuals providing services. Great. And I, I want to move on to mitochondrial health. Uh, you know, the latest buzzword, Doug Wallace and all his work, uh, really stating that 85% of all chronic disease is mitochondrial in origin. What is your view and the latest science on mitochondrial health and how do we hack it and how do we improve the function of our mitochondria? Well, there's another topic that when I, I think back, I have a warm feeling uh, about because um, we kind of birthed the functional medicine movement out of the experiences in the 1980s with what was called chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, we affiliated ourselves uh, with a number of thought-leading uh, both researchers and practitioners, one of who was Dr. Paul Cheney, uh, a medical doctor, a PhD in immunology, who was in private practice as an internist in Incline Village, Nevada, which is um, 
a kind of a skiing area in the in the mountains uh, between California and Nevada. And um, one winter in the in the 80s, this would be at like 1985, uh, he suddenly had a, a variety of his patients that came down with this very uh, debilitating fatigue syndrome, and there was no explanation for it. And uh, a lot of the traditional medicine people said it was just psychogenic, it was in their mind that they just were having whatever kind of psychological, psychosomatic illness and there was no organicity to it. But he really believed that uh, there was something going on here that was related to like possibly a post-viral fatigue uh, relationship. That it may be related to things like uh, cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr virus. And, and if you think back to the middle 80s, that was also the age of HIV and AIDS. And so the whole nature of viral pandemics as we're going through today, we're being really serious then. So uh, we got working with Dr. Cheney and because of his PhD in immunology, we, we kind of took a science approach to this and started looking at what was going on. And we eventually landed on a, a concept uh, with Dr. Cheney that we published back in the late eighties uh, that led us to believe that this was a mitochondropathy that these individuals had sustained some kind of injury yet to be uh, understood, but an injury to their mitochondrial bioenergetics, and which is found in every cell of the body, these mitochondria, the, the energy powerhouses of cells. And so we, had, we developed a program actually, um, which we called mitochondrial uh, resuscitation. And that was uh, one of the early stage uh, functional medicine programs was this mitochondrial resuscitation program. When we first came out with this, this would have been, uh, again, like uh, 1989, 90, 91, um, there was a huge pushback from medicine saying, what in the world are you talking about? You can't resuscitate mitochondria. I mean, it was just, that's ridiculous. Um, I'll roll forward to today. Maybe the term is a little bit provocative, but the concept is not. Uh, scientifically now, we know that the mitochondria can undergo uh, uh, mitochondrial division and replication when the cell is not. So they're, they have their own messages, they have their own DNA, they do their own work, and there's a process called mitophagy that uh, clears out damaged mitochondria and allows new ones to replace it, even when the cell itself is not replicating or, or turning over. And so there are ways now that we, uh, we have discovered and used uh, Doug Wallace as an example, his article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine about mitochondrial diseases, I think it was 1994, was a landmark article at, from Emory Medical School and so the field just started to grow up. And what we had started to talk about in 1985, six, seven, and eight really became a dominant thought about these fatigue related and chronic pain related things. We studied fibromyalgia, we studied desert storm, we studied multiple chemical sensitivity. They all seem to have an interrelationship to this mitochondropathy. And this is what I would call it a acquired mitochondropathy. Now, if I can just kind of close this, uh, this review, um, now we've gotten to the point in basic sciences of mitochondrial diseases saying that when 40% of the mitochondria that individuals have as these energy powerhouses in their cells become damaged or mutated, then we, we suddenly define that as a mitochondrial disease. And there's all sorts of names for these diseases, uh, Leber's optic neuropathy, Kane-Stern, I mean, I could go down a hole, uh, lactic acidosis uh, and so forth. Uh, and so there are all these mitochondrial diseases uh, that occur when you get more than 40% of the body's mitochondria being injured, either as a consequence of genetics, maybe you were born with these as a, a genetic problem, 
that would appear more often in young individuals and infants, or later in life as an acquired mitochondriopathy. But what happens, and here's the functional medicine model relived, does that mean that when you have 39% of your mitochondria injured, that you're fine? And then when you get 40%, you suddenly have a disease? Or is there a graded um, functional decrement that occurs as you increase the number of mitochondria that become injured and they can't be replaced with new healthy mitochondria rapidly enough? So our belief, and I think we've proven this now uh, with studies that we've done and many other investigators, including um, Michael Mays in, in uh, in Belgium who's published a number of papers on this is that there are increasing signs and symptoms of uh, energetic deficiency that occur with increasing injury to mitochondria. And it's not just waiting till you have 40% of them injured to call it a disease. There's this chronic condition that exists in different degrees. And we're gonna see, by the way, I, I think a tremendous number of these occurring as a consequence of post COVID long haul syndrome these will be mitochondriopathies as well. And so the question is then, what do you do with it? And fortunately, now having 40 years of experience, we think we've got some ways to do this through the functional medicine model, uh, gastrointestinal restoration with a 4-R program, uh, metabolic detoxification, mitochondria resuscitation, and immunorejuvenation. Those are the ways that we would approach this using our tools that are not in the standard lexicon of traditional medicine. And we think we might be better off in, in the way we're going to manage this, then traditional medicine treat each symptom with a single drug. I agree totally. And uh, I do want to sort of spend a bit more time on the microbiome, but I want to start with the oral microbiome, Dr. Bland, because I've interviewed a few sort of biological dentists and uh, the oral health being, you know, according to them, 70% of the origin of all disease. And Thomas Levy's book, about, you know, as a cardiologist, seeing what's happening with the cardiovascular system and the detrimental effects of uh, periodontitis and root canals and cavitations. Uh, tell us a little bit about the oral microbiome and oral health and, uh, you know, its value in the start of the actual microbiome that is so, well, gaining traction is not so well known, but in functional medicine circles, we, we sure get a lot of training in the microbiome, but how important is uh, oral health? Yeah, thank you. You're hitting on such really important topics. Um, so it's very interesting, again, when I look back, and this is what happens when you become an old timer, right? You now look back and you say, wow, that was kind of interesting uh, back then because I wrote a forward um, of a book that was written on root canals by one of the most prominent um, professionals in the society of dentists who focus and specialize in root canals. And um, he became a uh, critic of his own profession. Uh, he was a, a California-based uh, practitioner. He was actually a DMD PhD. And so he wrote this book and he said, Jeff, would you write a forward to it? And, uh, and I, I did so. Now that didn't win me a lot of favor with the, at the time uh, with the dental community, because again, this was in the 1980s. Um, but he, he made his uh, decisions based on experience that he had seen with people that were getting focal infections after root canals and having uh, loss of bone in their jaws and systemic effects. And so he became very concerned that uh, any place where you can harbor um, infection in the oral cavity is going to have not just a local regional effect, but it's going to have a systemic effect. And I felt that was a very reasonable concept when I wrote the forward to his book. Now we recognize that 
the oral cavity is just one of a number of places in our body where focal simmering infection uh, can reside for years. It can be in the nasal pharynx, it can be in the respiratory tract, it can obviously be in the gut uh, with dysbiosis. Um, any place where your body is, is harboring um, in a dark corner that's nutrient rich an infection, it's not just localized to that place. You're going to then activate um, your immune system that carries messages throughout the rest of the body and the release of inflammatory mediators because your, your body is now systemically on guard. It's now doing battle. It thinks it's under siege. And so the, the oral cavity obviously is one of those important sources of potential focal infection uh, and periodontitis. And, and periodontitis really can exist in a couple of forms. Uh, one is a kind of a sterile form, which is not really uh, uh, driven by bacterial infection. And then, but the more common form is the, sort of associated with plaque and with uh, bacterial uh, debris and metabolism. And that form is really in part related to oral hygiene, but it also has to do with systemic immune effects as well. And so it's, it's a combination of local and regional influence. But what we can say for sure is that if you have focal infection in your oral cavity, that you are then at higher uh, stress to your immune system, which based upon how your immune system wants to interpret that information can put you into a higher risk situation for things like cardiovascular disease and for autoimmune disease and, and disorders that are associated now with, with inflammation and, and activation of certain components of your immune system. So I think the, the I feel kind of good about this when I think back to this advocacy I had in the 80s that was pretty heavily criticized. And I was hanging out with a group of a kind of uh, radical dentists at the time that were actually part of our original group of founding the Institute for Functional Medicine. Because I think we've been, I don't want to say completely vindicated, but a lot of what we were saying has been proven to be correct. Great, because I think it's such an important field. Uh, it's just so contrary to traditional dentistry. If you had a root canal, what do you do? Do you go and uh, sort the root canal out? Do you put uh, you know, ceramic implant or zirconium implant? Or if you've got a cavitation from a wisdom removal, you know, what do you do? And, and never mind the expense involved. What is your take on, on people that you know, their labs are sort of, and one is difficult to say healthy, but they're not suffering with any of these you know, significant symptoms, but they've had a couple of root canals, they might have some mercury amalgams. How important is that to address to prevent disease before disease comes on? Yeah, I think that's another very uh, important question. You know, one thing that we all know is that in the response to different kinds of um, exposures, and this has to do both with their genetics and their epigenetics. And so there are there are some individuals um, that are, you know, they've traditionally been called yellow canaries. I think that's a little bit of um, kind of pejorative talk, but mm. individuals that have much more sensitive immune systems in, in which exposure to certain things and triggers a, a much more uh, advanced or uh, uh, amplified immune response. And so I think uh, understanding something about the immunological status of the individual and how they're dealing, how their body is dealing with exposures. Because let's face it, none of us live in a perfect environment. Mm. We're all being exposed to stuff. And some people have um, have pretty good resilience uh, as maybe part of the luck of the draw of their genes. And then also maybe the luck of the draw of the way they were raised as infants and young children 
and they got uh, a proper immune cell training, so their immune cell is, is more resilient. But those individuals who um, are experiencing immunological response are the ones that really need to get the uh, uh, a different lesson plan, right? And so maybe it's not one size fits all. It's let's ask how it's influencing your body so that we'll do the right thing for you, an individualized treatment. I think fantastic. Uh, I think that's... Uh rings true for, for most interventions. I'm just concerned because of how important the biological dentist sort of place on oral health and, you know, the root cause documentary that was pulled off Netflix showing that 94% of women who get breast cancer have a root canal on the same side. Now, is that causative or is that correlative? Uh, we, we don't really know, but those are important stats and Thomas Levy's book in the background, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it, is uh, it's a big call to do all this invasive dentistry. On the other hand, it might just save your life from significant chronic disease. I think probably there's a lot more science that needs to go into that, Dr. Bland. Yeah, again, I wanna come back, and th this is just my, my personal opinion, so just take it for that. I'm just an opinion in a sea of opinions, but, but my opinion is that there are, um, I don't know the specific number, but let's just say there are millions of people that have had root canals. I think that would be a, a reasonable assumption. Of those millions, the majority of them have not had adverse effects from their root canal. But the ones that have had adverse effects, it can be very serious. And, and so the question is, again, trying to keep things in balance. You know, I, I look at life and say, life is not risk-free. I mean, just waking up in the morning and going outside has risk associated with it. So the question is we have to evaluate individual risk based upon our own principles and how it's, it's affecting our bodies. And what can often happen, I believe, is that we can develop so many fears of risk that it can, it can uh, immobilize us, it can paralyze us. And, and so we have to make intelligent decisions about what kind of risk we're willing to accept and what is unacceptable and how that influences maybe us or our loved ones or our environment. Um, I mean, a, a, you know, an existential threat would be like global climate change that affects everybody. Mm. So how much are we willing to accept that risk? Well, uh, I would hope we're gonna say that's a risk for future generations that we better deal with. But maybe another risk for us that somebody would say, well, that's too much of a risk for me in the way it affects my body. We might say, no, uh, that's an acceptable risk to me. And, and because on my scale of things, that falls way below my threshold. So I, I think this is a, uh, we, have to, we have to help people understand the concept of relative risk and then understand how to individualize their approach or we'll make everybody so phobic that they won't be able to do anything. Mm, great. I do, I've got two sort of topics left as we draw to a close and so grateful for your time and your wisdom. But light and junk light and artificial light is uh, gaining a lot of traction. Andrew Huberman, from Stanford and talking about sunlight in your eyes, the photoreceptors, where melatonin gets made, you know, your suprachiasmatic nucleus and how it sets your circadian clock. Dr. Session Panda's work on the circadian code, Doug Wallace's work in terms of the respiratory proteins and the complexes being photoreceptors. Uh, the, the, the science is growing and growing and growing about the junk light and possibly even Western Price's work that, you know, the, the communities that he saw were outside. I mean, I'm an African living in you know, different parts uh, of the country that have been rural. I did a lot of medical training in rural Africa where, uh, you know, they had a very poor 
diet of, you know, Coke and, and, you know, refined carbohydrates, but they were outside and they were almost absent of disease to a large degree and had resistant immune systems with, you know, they weren't, uh, they, they didn't have this, you know, hygienic hypothesis of everything was clean. They were outside with, you know, great microbiome. How important is light? And, you know, I found that blue blocking glasses and blocking the blue and the green spectrum and protecting my melatonin in my sleep has been fundamental for me in, in my health journey. How important is light with regards to one's health and maximizing performance? Well, you covered a couple of very important topics there. You covered light and you also covered exposure to immune training things in, in our environment as we're kids and growing up and outside and, and not having everything sterile. Those are two both very important parts of our body's adaptation system. And uh, I think um, many of us are very concerned that in our attempts to rid our environment of infectious organisms, we have also reduced the ability of children's immune systems to be trained to be more resilient as they grow older. And there is this, again, balance between being concerned about infection, but not so overly concerned that we don't allow natural immunity to develop by training the immune system early on when it's still developing. So I think that point you made is a really important point. Secondly, with regard to light, I, I was, again, smiling. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to do this, a walk like memory, a walk down memory lane for me. Because in the, um, let's see, I want to make sure I get my period of time right. So this would have been, yes, this would have been the late 70s for me when I was a professor. I had a uh, opportunity to meet at a, at a dinner party uh, a photographer who was the lead photographer at the time for Disney productions in which back then and most people probably would not remember this, had these incredible photo, um, uh, films that had uh, time-lapse photography of plants that were blooming, that were flowers that were blooming and plants that were growing. And they were so dramatic. I remember uh, Disney used to have a TV show on, um, on broadcast TV on, I think it was Sunday evenings. It was every family got together in front of the TV to watch the, the Disney show. And they would have periodically these incredible um, movies or, or uh, videos of, the, of these plants uh, growing and showing the dynamic of life in timeless photography. Well, it turns out that the lead photographer who developed this um, ability to make these uh, films uh, had to undergo a lot of trial and error to do it because when you try to grow plants over a period of time in, in a greenhouse environment, so that they, you'll be able to have cameras running continuously to watch them germinating and so forth, that most of the time, uh, well, in fact, all the time, they either don't develop flowers or they die. And so he got wondering why that was. And, you know, because you can't really do it outside because outside, if you have to go through a whole growing season, you know, the weather blows over and so forth. So uh, he started playing with light. And he was the guy that discovered this concept called full spectrum lighting. And so when he went to and he had went to light manufacturing, he said, hey, uh, can we make these these lights that don't have these uh, UV absorbing qualities that will allow this uh, near UV light to come through uh, the bulb? Because uh, I want to try those as lights for my films. 
And when he did that, suddenly, boom, now he was the world's best producer of plant life, right, uh, by Thomas photography. So he became a very strong believer that light is health. And so uh, that then became uh, the birthing of the movement to then look at uh, industrial lighting and in office buildings, the yellow lights of fluorescence and the effects that it had on, on health and so forth. And actually even in our own government, uh, they, they saw this new building at the time in uh, the Environmental Protection Agency building that was all sealed and had no open windows and no outside light. And they were using these yellow lights fluorescent and people were getting sick. And, and so all of this was part of my kind of early education and development. And uh, we did a number of seminars for doctors with this photographer explaining uh, his, he wrote a best-selling book on this actually that kind of gave birth to this whole field. So I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Light, and then later, obviously, melatonin was discovered, the supercosmic nucleus, the circadian rhythms, and all the things you're talking about. It's gotten become much more mechanistically understood, and it's become a fundamental principle now in the functional. Um, once again, it shows observation is where you start any discovery. And just because a person observed something that other hasn't doesn't mean they're wrong. <laughs> right. They may actually be right. We just have to uh, develop more information, which has happened over the last 30 years. Great. There's a lot of fear with C19 all over the world. If you have to give three or four tips, or if you want to say more with regards to people out there that are listening right now, how to improve and develop a robust and resilient immune system, what can they do? Well, uh, again, I'm going to send your viewers to an article that I wrote uh, that's available free download called What to Do, COVID-19, What to Do. Uh, I wrote it uh, just about uh, a month ago, I guess. It's in uh, uh, a magazine that's free publication or a free publication called Medium. So if you do a medium.com and just do a Jeffrey Bland, this article will come up. I think it has a what, what we put together called a decision-making tree. How does a person make a decision as to what to do, um, given the fact that this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus is going to be around with this for some time? And so what, what do you do? So this article, which I think has uh, over 50 references uh, from the biologic medical literature, I think provides a really good kind of a summary guidance document for how people could make intelligent decisions based on how they want to personally manage their condition. So I, I would encourage just go to medium.com and look at Jeffrey Bland and you'll find that article on COVID-19, what to do. Great. And we'll put that in the show notes because I think it's going to be really important. We'll put it on the Made to Thrive website. Hopefully we can link it on there as well. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bland. The last question that I ask all my guests is uh, what I find over the many years of executive coaching, being in practice for 22 years is that People battle to maintain their sustained transformation. They put things in place, lifestyle sort of habits in places and routines. And, you know, six months later, they haven't continued either their nutrition plan, their exercise plan, their outdoor sunlight plan. Uh, and the research is, I think, pretty, you know, solid that most people that lose weight within five years will gain this all the way back. And if not more, how do you encourage or you know, lead people along this journey of maintaining their sustained transformation. Yeah, thank you. I, I wish I could give you the magic uh, secret. You know, we're all ser searching for that elusive magic secret uh, that might 
help people be successful with behavior mod and, and it sticks with them as an enduring theme. But I can give one at least insight to my, my, my learning at least. And that is, I think people don't like monotony. People like change. And you can see that in exercise programs that, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons that uh, a lot of the more successful exercise programs are having a variety of different kinds of exercises and, and changing it up. It's not just like staying with one form of exercise. Yes, it's good for the whole body, but it's also good for the diversity and for the variety. And um, so I think that uh, one needs to, first of all, be in an environment that's supporting healthy living. So that's your kind of social support system, but then you should uh, change it up periodically. Um, it's one of the reasons I like some of these wearable devices because, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a techno geek as it relates to uh, wearables, and I like to change up periodically my wearable and then say, okay, what can I learn from this? And then I find it kind of reinstills and reinitiates my commitment to certain things because it's just kind of fun. And if you can gamify life, if you can gamify health, you can, you can then improve your compliance. If it becomes a drudge and it just is kind of a millstone, you're probably not gonna stick with it. But if you can change it up and make it continually gamified, uh, that your health is, is something you're competing against with yourself for fun, then I think it leads to much uh, longer compliance. Great, a lot of wisdom there. Where can people find more information about the you know, incredible Dr. Jeffrey Bland and his long career and history and continuing training programs? Where can people connect with you, Dr. Bland? Uh, well, I've already mentioned one place, which is our uh, plminstitute.org. But I also, uh, you know, have, as probably we all do, my own website, jeffreybland.com. So J-E-F-F-R-E-Y Bland, B-L-A-N-D.com. So in any one of those uh, can be a place to find me and what we're doing and uh, access our information. Great. Well, I salute you, Dr. Bland. You've got another friend in South Africa. If you ever hear, I would. It's, it's uh, really been a pleasure, Steve. I, yeah. I really appreciate what you're doing, and, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Made to Thrive show. New episodes are released weekly and are published exclusively on the Made to Thrive podcast link. If you're interested in receiving more thriving insights as well as receiving other exclusive member benefits, visit madetothrive.co.za forward slash subscribe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and they should seek the assistance of healthcare professionals for any such conditions.